Like it's really sexy to build these high flying startups, but it's much more dependable and much easier way to get wealthy is just like buying something small that's working and improving it. It's a real skill set to go from zero to one. It's way easier to go from like three to 10. Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Welcome to the Indie Rails. All right, hello everyone. Today we are joined by Colin Keeley. Colin, well, you actually have a couple different companies that you're associated with. I know you, through the internet, we met through Twitter, I think, and one of your websites is called ndpe.com, which we're Indie Rails, so it's kind of a cool name yeah. association. And then you have a company called Vern, is it HQ? Uh, Vern. Or yeah, just Vern. Vern is the name of it. Okay. So it's like a software holding company, effectively. So we own a number of startups. Effectively, what we do is buy and build often bootstrap SaaS companies. And then IndiePE is like my course business, basically trying to teach someone how to buy their first business and they don't have to be finance people and it doesn't have to be scary. They could be developers. And then we have a podcast called Indie Acquisitions, the same idea of just like us building in public and dealing with day-to-day bootstrap SaaS issues. That's awesome because as a developer, for years and years, you always hear all the stories of the big startups that start, grow huge, and then have this extremely large exit to a Facebook or a Google or some big competitor. And so to hear people buying businesses and selling to PE, that was really intriguing to me. And really, I have a finance background. I went and got my undergrad in finance, and I was not really that knowledgeable in the area of private equity. Can you just give a quick high-level overview of what that is? Private equity at a high level is traditionally buying majority stakes, often 100% stakes in private companies. And then venture capital is like a subset of private equity technically. And that's often buying minority stakes and having crazy growth expectations. But in the private equity world, where we play is more it's called micro private equity, abbreviated micro PE, which I never use anymore because you get a lot of on Twitter. But yeah, it's just small, you know, sub $5 million traditionally acquisitions of companies. When you say sub $5 million, is that for you guys or is that for micro PE just in general? So what we do traditionally is often 200K ARR on the low end up to like $5 million on the high end. But yeah, you could buy a micro SaaS for like $10,000. And maybe yeah. it's making a couple hundred dollars a month or something like that. Microfire or acquire.com is what it's now named is like the best place to go to find these you know, really small SaaS companies. But it's a booming space. It used to be really hard. Maybe you find some old thing on Product Hunt you could buy. But now there's marketplaces you could go to and see who's for sale. And it's a little more professional. So you mentioned venture capital. And I was kind of alluding to, it seems like they get a lot of the attention. Do you just offhand know, like, what's the size of the venture capital market versus in general... PE market? It's significantly smaller. I don't know. That's what I was thinking. It has to be like, what, 10% maybe? I can make up a number. 10% sounds roughly right. I don't know off the top of my head. But yeah, it's a small subset. They get like 80% of the attention, right? Yeah. Very loud, small subset. Private equity people are very private. They're more finance oriented. Venture capitalists have figured out that it's beneficial to be loud on Twitter for deal flow and everything. I think Andreessen Horowitz kind of kicked it off and everyone kind of followed afterwards. So how in the world did you get into this space? Where did you start? So background, did a bunch of startups, a lot of failures, some small successes at a software marketing agency, TV. What was your role in those startups? Or were Um, you in the marketing side, finance side, or? I would say product and marketing. So yeah, I have a partner now. He's like the tech and product side of things, Brent Sanders. And I'm the marketing business finance side of things. 
Okay. So yeah, started some things. TV movie recommendation company at a sharing economy startup. The raised some money, flamed out. Through that process, met some VCs, pitched a bunch. They didn't like my business, but liked me well enough. I hopped on over there. That's where I met my partner who was like... So we were a Series A fund. So it's like, call it SaaS companies doing like a million in ARR and growing really fast. We so you got hired by a venture firm? Yeah. And then it was also a startup studio. So like once to twice it. a year, you spin up new companies. So how I got into this, through that process, everyone does that a little differently. It's just really hard, even if you like you've done it before and have money behind you. I discovered this guy, Andrew Wilkinson out in Canada that was like buying product market fit yep. and just putting best practices in place and growing something. I was like, that sounds amazing. It's just so hard to find product market fit. So we did our first deal. Next, we bought Blink Sale, which I know this is a Rails podcast. I think it was like the second Ruby on Rails app ever. So it's like That's 15 cool. years old or something. Very We're cool. actually still running like the old classic version. People are very happy. They just refuse to move to the new version and find whatever they could stay on yeah. it. How did you get from venture capital working for someone else to, I'm going to buy my first company? So I had the goal of doing it. And then I went on MicroAcquire actually when it was just getting started. It was really small and found this Blink Sale company listed. And so I had a conversation with the founder. I'd say we kind of like bonded over past failures of different things and set up a fairly simple deal structure. Didn't really know what I was doing. Brought in a lawyer to document everything and off to the races and closed the deal. So did you do this one on your own or was it through your partner as well? Yeah, he came in and then we had a lot of seller financing because we didn't really have the capital to buy a big business. So it was almost 50% seller financing with the oh, structure wow. of it was like... So seller financing is a crazy concept if you've never heard of it before. Yeah, that's something I want to get into. Yeah, you could pay for a business with the profits from the business. So if it's making a few thousand dollars in profit a month, you could say, hey, I'll pay you a few thousand dollars a month for the next 18 months or whatever. And that could be included in the purchase price. So you don't need as much money upfront as maybe you think you do to buy something. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that someone can basically give you their business. And I'm sure you got to put some down payment down, but then you just take over the business and use the inflows of that business to pay for it and potentially pay yourself. Yeah. If you look at it from the seller's perspective, the hardest job for them is like finding the right buyer. And if you have to find the right buyer and they have to have all the money 100% in their bank account right now, like that's just a very small group of people. And if you expand it out to someone that's like capable of running it, but doesn't quite have the money, then maybe you could pay like your mortgage or something for the next two years. And you just structure a deal in kind of a unique way to do that. So how long ago was that that you did that first deal? It's probably two and a half, three years ago now at this point. And was it at that time, did you have the goal to build a portfolio of these or were you just focused on buying one and operating it at that time? Buy the first one and make it successful for sure. A theory more was like start small and make relatively small mistakes. So it wasn't tiny. It was like a multi six figure deal, but it wasn't also huge where it would be like a personal guaranteed $5 million loan that would really hurt for a long time. But yeah, the plan was always to build more of a portfolio. I kind of look up to these other folks that have bought many more companies and were kind of copying their playbook. How long did you own that company until you found your next deal? I think it was maybe 10 months, nine months, something like that. The second one is called Automatic. It's a backups company, database backups. And they reached out to me. They wanted to close before the end of the year. It's like they're afraid of tax changes. But yeah, I do a lot of building in public. So that was beneficial that an intermediary found me and reached out to do it. So you think that's a result of your marketing and podcasts and things that you're doing online? 
Yeah, that's definitely the goal of like, it's way easier when people come to you for things. Investors, people who want to sell their business, all that different stuff, employees as well. And that's why I produce content online for the most part, besides like just writing and distilling your thinking, I think is valuable. But yeah, it's been fruitful. You were saying that sellers have to look for the right buyer. What does that mean? Like what are sellers looking for when they want to sell their business? What is the right buyer for them? You mean besides cash? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, everyone, yeah, besides cash. <laughs> everyone says, you know, they want the max money, but it's like, okay, well, max money, maybe they're going to fire all your employees and they're going to like destroy your baby that you work so hard for. Yeah. So yeah, the average person actually cares what happens to the thing they worked on for the last mm-hmm. five to seven years. Yeah. And so what we can offer is a good home. We're much closer to founders than like traditional finance people. So people become comfortable with us. And I think we get better deals because of it and win deals because of it. But yeah, who the best buyer is, it's you got to interview everyone. And then like price is one thing. So like you want the max money, but it's also terms. So you could get funky earnouts to tie you up for a long period of time. Or you get more money up front. There's all different things you could do. So if I'm a developer, and I think most developers kind of have this mindset, we want to build our own thing. We're known for better or for worse. We're rolling our own solution to this functionality or that. And I think that extends into building businesses too. We want to you know, build our own version of Twitter or whatever our business idea is. Why would we instead purchase one? So the hardest thing is, it seems like we all know, is like finding that product market fit. And it's a real skill set to go from zero to one. It's way easier to go from like three to 10. There's very established playbooks for how do you grow a SaaS business once it's like running and there's real customers and everything. Why would you buy one? It's all about kind of de-risking your efforts. When you're starting something, you're doing all these decisions, you're making like all these support documents. It's like maybe this company never even takes off and you wasted all this time for no purpose. But if you're buying something that already works, like it's not likely it's going to continue working. And it's kind of amplifying your efforts and judgment by like doing things to just continue to prove something that's already working. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Getting started, especially in SaaS, is it's a slow ramp. It could take two, three, four years to build up to like a decent MOR. And if you could just buy that right off the bat, then you just speed warp four or five years and your idea is validated. There's already customers. So yeah, I mean, you're buying cash flow as well. Like these things are valued on some multiple of cash flow, traditionally three to five, like trailing 12 months when it's thrown off. Like you have customers, you go talk to the customers and ask them like, what's the most annoying thing? What are the features are we missing? What else would you pay more for? And it's just much nicer to do traditional improvements. Is it a better approach for people to buy first, buy a business first that's working and learn how to manage ASAS and then go build, kind of reverse it? Because it seems like everybody keeps trying. They can't seem to find customers or find that product market fit or whatever. So then they switch to like, let me acquire something and run a business. Do you think it'd be better for people to run a business first, a SaaS? I highly recommend like, getting, I guess, experience working for someone or like working for a few years before doing this. But you got to kind of look at yourself and realize or think about it. Are you a starter? Are you more of a scaler? If you've tried to start a bunch of stuff and none of it's worked out, maybe think about trying to become a scaler instead. If you have the capital too, it's really nice to not start from zero, start from three and just continue to improve stuff. How did you figure out like what you were? I love that idea of a starter or scaler. Like, you think that's a personality thing? Or is it like just at some point you realize, here's the set of skills that I've developed and they turn out to be mostly around scaling things? 
I was mostly just blown away that I didn't understand like any of this was even an option. That you could just buy mm-hmm. someone else's hard work and often like not even put up a bunch of money to do it. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was an insane concept. And then there's definitely like a boringness discount to it. Like it's really sexy to build these high flying startups, but it's much more dependable and much easier way to get wealthy mm-hmm. is just like buying something small that's working and improving it. So I swung and missed a number of times and I was like, I think I'm going to take this other route that I am pretty confident in working and is fully under your control. Venture capital backed startups are tough where it's like, mm-hmm. you're kind of searching for things. Maybe the market's there, maybe it's not. That's, I think, realistically why things fail. It's not like a lack of hard work or a lack of talent. It's like an underlying situation. That makes sense. But Jeremy, and back to your question about getting that experience. I think there's an opportunity for independent developers to work with smaller companies and really get your feet wet with the whole operation if it's small enough and if the company is open to sharing that with you, doing sales, working with customers, working on business plans, and just seeing the whole business from a 360 degrees. I mean, that's one of my favorite parts about being a consultant with small business is getting to see all the nitty gritty details about what they do and not just coming to do programming. Being able to like watch what they do from a marketing perspective or even helping with some of those things, design, marketing, like, you know, customer support, those kind of things. I love being not in the driver's seat, but I'm in the passenger seat to a certain extent with smaller businesses and getting to see very closely how they're running. It feels like I'm getting to learn all the up close, you know, for all the things that they're going through and the choices they have to make. Yeah. And you're getting paid for it. Yeah. (laughs) So Colin, can we take a look at like a business deal? I need some numbers to sort of visualize this in my head. What's a typical deal you're seeing people do through, was it Acquire? Just walk me through like a standard price. How much is the price 5X of operating income? Like what's kind of typical with that business size? There's all different business sizes. Where we play is bigger than most individuals would play and smaller than most traditional private equity would play. But yeah, people buy stuff all the time for, I don't know, we'll come up with a round number, like $100,000. It generally, that's a multiple of three to five X the trailing 12 months profits. Another way of phrasing that is seller discretionary earnings. So if Jess owns 100% of the company and what did he make it last year from it? And then you throw a multiple on that and it's three to five X traditionally. Microacquire, which is now acquired out, they put out a good multiple report every six months. And that's probably like the best way to go look and like see what things are transacting at. It gets very wonky on the low end of the market where people are basically trying to get paid for like the hours that they put in. But most of the market is a multiple of like profits, basically, or cash flow. And that works out to one to four X ARR traditionally. So I know everyone thinks their babies were 10x or 20x ARR, but the reality of the financial market is more like 1 to 4x. And so what does that mean? If I pay 5x, does that mean I earn my money back in five years? If everything remains the same? Yes. That's how that math would work. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's a short turnaround, right? I I mean, mean, standards even better if you grow it. And (laughs) like standard returns in the stock market are what? Every seven years you earn your money back? Seven, eight percent? Yeah. I try not to do mental math on podcasts, but that sounds... <laughs> yeah, know, we're breaking the rules here. Correct. So if I own a company and I'm running it, and if I'm thinking about selling it, so that's sort of the price that I should be shooting for is 3 to 5x? Yeah, I think you have to look at your metrics. SaaS is very metrics driven. And so you could see if you're like around comparables or above comparables. It matters a lot how quickly you're growing and how profitable you are. 
but yeah, you could find benchmarks out there to give an idea if you're on the higher end of the range or lower end of the range. So there's marketplaces and there's also brokers. So brokers will manage the sales process for you. They have relationships with buyers, but they'll also take a good chunk. They'll take like 15% traditionally if you go that route. Who pays that? The seller does, yeah. Just curious, what are the kind of conditions that you're looking for when you're coming into evaluating a business? I know there's a ton here. If I own a company, how can I make it valuable to use somebody who wants to buy yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so traditional SaaS metrics, we're going to look at your churn. So we want to see relatively low churn. If it's super high, it's probably a problem. Growing, we don't really ever mess around with declining businesses. I think momentum is really powerful and you need a pretty good reason why it's not going to be declining under you. Those are the biggest metrics as far as if you're thinking of selling, I would try to run your business as profitably as possible and show growth would be great. And just be organized, have financials in order, have a bookkeeper, know your metrics. That is also good advice if you're like not planning on selling. Just do all those things and be better off. Don't hide anything. So you do this whole like wooing period, but then there's the diligence period. So like after a letter of intent is signed, basically it's a trust but verify situation. So you go through all the financials and confirm everything is said is accurate. And it's way better to kill a deal on both sides earlier So you almost want to say like, hey, these are the biggest risks with the business. And these are like all the things you're going to find in the closet when you look. So that builds a lot of goodwill and also just gets everything out there. And if they're not going to do it, at least you know that in advance and don't waste time. So if I wanted to buy a business, how much cash? Well, I guess it depends on the sale price. But as a percentage, is there sort of a general guideline for expected equity that you want to put down? We've talked about, you know, the equity investment that's upfront, Chernobyl from you. There's debt, which we really haven't talked about, and then seller financing, which you talked about. So there's different debt options. It's not as common in SaaS, but there's a system in the US called the SBA 7A loan. Basically, this acquisition debt that you could use that you could finance up to, I think, 95% of the purchase price. And there's a lot of hoops you got to jump through and it has to be personally guaranteed, but it's incredibly cheap debt. And that's like the best option if you're able to get it to work. Otherwise, there's revenue-based finance options, especially for SaaS. It's very sticky, very recurring. So you could get a good chunk of debt to put up like the upfront money to buy a business as well. So I mean, if you could do it with your own money and like seller financing, I think that's the best case. If you can't, there's other options as well to like finance some of it. I was recently on a, I think they call it an office hours call with Live Oak Bank. Have you ever heard of them? Popular for SBA loans. They're the biggest, yeah. And I think their deal is they like to see 10% equity down, 15% seller financing, and then 75% on the SBA side. Yeah, that sounds about right. How do you raise money? I'm assuming you're buying private equity is other people's money, right? So there's entrepreneurship through acquisition, which is kind of the umbrella we're playing under. And then there's search funds. And search funds are like these basically pools of capital that go and buy stuff. And they could have the pool of capital in advance or they could raise it afterwards. So there's all these family offices, wealthy entrepreneurs, just like kind of wealthy people in general, sometimes doctors or different things, lawyers that just invest in these kind of deals. They're all accredited investors? Yeah, they have to be to do that. How do you find them? It's So there's communities for that. We are getting to the point where it's like getting beyond those typical ones. And then you're trying to find family offices where there's... Turns out a lot of these like wealthy families out there that have to deploy their capital. And so they're trickier to find. It's mostly just networking. Twitter helps and people reach out in the DMs. But otherwise, it's like, can you answer me to your friend and that kind of thing. So I saw you mention Constellation Software in one of your tweets. Who are they and 
And why are you tweeting about them? So they're the big boys. They've bought 600 of these vertical market software companies. 600 plus. I think they bought 134 in 2022. So absurd. They've just wow. compounded, yeah, forever. So they started with a $25 million fund, maybe close to 20 years ago. And I think it's like worth 40 plus billion now. So one of the best performing like fund managers of all time. Mark Leonard is the founder over there. He looks like Gandalf. He's like 6'5", 280 pounds. He has like three foot long beard. And he doesn't do interviews. So he is like super press shy. And he's developed this whole like decentralized organism. So he only approves the largest transactions. Otherwise, he has all these minions and he pushes it way down to the business units. And they're in charge of like go, no go on small acquisitions. So unfortunately, they still do really small stuff and will beat us out on deals that you think it's way too small for them to matter, but they will still buy you know million dollar AR companies. I never thought something like that would exist. Yeah, I and they're pretty private about it, unless you're in our world and you come across them. Yeah, you're a competitor, huh? I like to think so. I don't know that they view us as a competitor. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. So what are your thoughts on partial investments? Is it kind of an all or nothing for you guys? Or do you ever take an equity stake? For a minority percentage? So we won't do minority. Many other people do. That's just not where we play. So we always want majority. We want control. We're open to letting founders keep equity. It's called rolling equity. But most of them haven't really wanted to do that. So we've to date only done 100% buyouts. And do you see, is there any value in doing that? Can you see the potential in it? I know you said it's not for you. Minority deals? I mean, it's certainly valuable for other folks. It's just not where we play. I know that you guys offer something called a due diligence. Tell me about that program. Yeah, Brent is the tech side of things. And I have a lot of people that follow me and are friends that are like more MBA or finance oriented people. And so they could use a Brent. So we have Brent as a service. So basically, you know, tech diligence. So he'll go in or he'll have someone that works for him go in and basically do all the tech diligence with someone on a SaaS company. How do the two of you connect? I think one of the things that oh, yeah, we I'm interested that. in is like, so a lot of our audience would be developers. How do you find this other person to partner with, become this powerhouse team, you know, for coming in and acquiring companies? Yeah. So we met at the Venture Capital Fund. We would go to Chipotle all the time and like talk about business deals. I don't think either of us thought like, hey, we should start something together, but mm-hmm. we're just always noodling on stuff. And we yeah. had very complimentary skill sets. But how do you find partners? Often it's like, childhood friend, then buy a business together or you know you work together in some capacity generally. You don't want like a shotgun wedding and be like, hey, I'm your partner for like the next 10 years on this project. Yeah, yeah. That's a little scary. But you could put vesting in place and you could do that as well. But it's better you have a history together. Yeah, that makes sense. Or you could walk into a bank like Andrew Wilkinson did and just find a finance guy. Yeah, I love that story. And Chris <laughs> walked away with like 10 plus percent of Tiny, which is worth a billion dollars now or close to it. $100 million? Yeah, it's crazy. Just echoing on what Jeremy was asking, I saw you recently had a Twitter thread about finding a technical co-founder. Expand a little bit more on that, but put yourself in our shoes as a technical person. Should we find a co-founder that's not technical? (laughs) Yeah, a bunch of non-developers that follow me and like want to buy a SaaS business and many buy the course and like they're ready to pull the trigger and they're just like, do I need that person with me? And so you could pay them in cash, or you could pay them in equity. And the danger is if you pay them in just cash, like their incentives really aren't aligned. So it's not their money on the line. They're not personally guaranteeing anything. They're getting paid either way. I think it's super valuable to have a good partner, but tons of people have bought my course and they're non-technical. They find good contractors, find good dev agencies, and they're able to like, you know, improve the product and 
get it to where it needs to go. So both are viable options. I obviously chose having a tech partner option. Back to your diligence service. Do you not offer it on the flip side? Like if I wanted to buy a business, could I come to you and show you the deal and say, hey, is this good or bad? Or like, what do I need to change or offer? I mean, maybe I should. I have the course, which kind of walks you through most of my thinking and has like all my templates and everything. And then we have a community on the back end. So a lot of people doing similar stuff. And so people ask for advice and I always reply and I have a bunch of, you know, buddies in the community that always reply. But should I provide a more premium handheld service? Maybe. Also just busy, like with our own companies. So I haven't been volunteering my time to do that kind of thing, but definitely get inbound for it. This is kind of changing topics a little bit, but as you're looking to acquire different businesses, I've always internalized this idea that you should work in the vertical that you know, or that you build in the industry you know. How much of that do you think is important, especially now that you're doing acquisitions in multiple, seems like different verticals and stuff like that? Is it still hard to come into an industry you don't know? So it's certainly valuable if you're buying your backgrounds in machine software and you buy a bunch of machine software or healthcare software. That's definitely valuable. There is another sense that we more ascribe to is like all software tastes like chicken. So the end customers are different. They're doing different things. But like fundamentally, the things we're doing, like the marketing channels we're using, paid ads, cold email, SEO, and like the thing we're doing on the product side of like adding features that are valuable and talking to users, all that is pretty similar. So we are closer to that concept now where it's like the things we do are all basically the same, whether it's landscapers or like dog walkers on the other end. Maybe can you lay out for us what's your game plan after you do this acquisition? What are the kind of things that you're going to do to improve customer satisfaction or growth or all those kind of things? You know, first of all, we take it over and we do relatively quick transitions because we are more founders and finance folks. So most of the time people want to walk away, they're burnt out. So we try to do a quick transition within 30 days, like immediately take over customer service and then transition the tech over, I'd say, 30 days. And so stability is the biggest thing there. Just make sure everything transfers fine. After that, I'd say we survey customers. So it's like do no harm, basically, and kind of understand the field. So we ask customers, what's the most annoying thing? You know, what features would they like to see added? Helps us prioritize the roadmap and like get those easy wins that make people excited for new ownership. Update the website. So if it's a crappy WordPress site, we move it to Webflow immediately. Gotten really fast at that, where it's just like copying over a template and adding things quick. Fix any technical SEO issues. Really push on SEO and start churning out articles. We already have writers in place to do that kind of thing. Generally, the small ones don't come with a team. So we have to put in a team of overseas developers. So that's more Brent's position, but he's hiring them, vetting different ones. And then like a big easy win traditionally is just optimizing pricing and like adding different features. So if you can add a premium tier, often people are really willing to pay more if you can make them more money. So kind of figuring out where that is and you know, raising prices is a quick, easy win. Traditionally, bootstrap founders are like, this is their baby. They can't really rock the boat. But if you've done this before, you kind of have a sense that you could raise prices within 10% of your competitors. And that's fine. People don't care. If anything, they're happy because you can make better software for them. That's a rough, like call it 90-day game plan. Yeah. All that makes a lot of sense. And it feels like it's maybe the kind of stuff that the original owner could do maybe i don't know what the condition that has someone with a favorable business to acquire what's causing them to leave you know i'm sure it's many different possible reasons or whatever but a lot of those things could be done by the original owner oh 100% and some of it's like just they've been doing it for a while and so it's like fresh eyes a fresh team coming yeah. in that's excited mm -hmm. 
But often they get to a point where they're like, they're making good money and they just kind of hit a plateau. They don't have the skills or they don't want to hire or they don't want to, you know, whatever it takes to get to the next level. Yeah. They're happy with where they got. I'm curious for smaller businesses, is the customer trust typically in the brand or in the owner as a person? And then how does that affect you as it's transitioning ownership? I wouldn't say we've lost any customers. I mean, there's definitely is something to being like an indie SaaS or like mm-hmm. a boutique SaaS that people get involved in your like story and they like supporting one person. But we're coming in and we're not like quadrupling prices and like yeah. ripping out the teams. And uh, so actually everyone after acquisition is probably higher. We actually wanted to document this. We think we could get MPS scores like upon acquisition and like how happy are they with the software and then like a year later. And like, see if they're happier. I could guarantee they're like significantly happier just because things are generally like putzing along and we dramatically improve the product. Yeah, I was wondering if it would actually feel better for people because if you come in and you start by surveying customers, suddenly they're getting connections to people that maybe they haven't had in a while. And so they're feeling heard in a way that maybe they had given up on, you know, certain requests that have been outstanding for a couple of years or, you know, oh, he's never going to get around to that or, but you have somebody new coming in saying, what are the most annoying things about this? And maybe it's even a step back from, this isn't my baby. I didn't make this. I'm coming in you know, now to improve it. And so there's maybe a... More objectivity. Yeah, yeah. People are so happy when they tell you what's the most annoying thing and you turn around and fix it within like a week. They're just like blown away. They've never seen anything like that. And that's like, if you're buying something great, but you could also do this if you just own a SaaS, just survey your customers. They'll tell you what you need to fix and like what you should add. How do you do the surveying? Like, what's that look like? Like tactically, we have it all hooked up in intercom. And then I just set up a type form with the same, basically three questions and blast it out to all paying users. What's the response on that? I mean, it depends on the business and like how active. So the most recent one we did was Scout, this dog walking software. And this is like people's livelihoods. Like they walk dogs all day, every day, and that's how they make their money. We probably got 50 answers in an hour. It was extraordinarily oh, wow. fast. And it was like, I couldn't turn off my email notifications fast enough before I like <laughs> filled up my whole inbox. Wow, that's cool. So Colin, I'm curious, you are clearly great at marketing and promotion and things like that. I'm seeing like from your blog, from your own podcast and Twitter. I'd love to hear, especially around like Twitter and like, how do you use that to network? Are there any things that you feel like most other people don't understand about how to use Twitter effectively? that you've kind of figured out? Writing generally is just like how I distill my thinking. So even if I didn't publish online, I think it's just valuable for me to do that. So it's a lot of taking notes and I just started sharing them publicly. As far as like doing Twitter well, there's definitely formulas to like try to get attention, get engagement and like the little headline matters quite a bit. But at a higher level, it's just like trying to be valuable to people. Hopefully you're writing things that are interesting and you know are useful. My process for doing it is I use Typefully which is just a little SaaS app that I think is free if you want to use it initially. It's just an easy way to write out threads. And I just try to do it in the morning whenever I can and probably get out like two threads a week. And generally on something I learned or something I am currently dealing with, a problem I'm solving, or someone in the course asked me a question, I was like, oh, I'll just write this out in public. Mm-hmm. That's generally how I think about it. I think it's scary. It's like publish your thoughts online. But it takes time for anyone even to pay attention. So like, if you're concerned about it, it doesn't matter. Literally, no one's reading it initially. And then more and more people read it and you get better at it. It's really just kind of getting in the process of putting in the work and over time you get good. Yeah. Ever since they put that impressions button at the bottom, 
I'm like, oh, nobody's looking anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's whatever. If you only had one promotional channel to use, let's say like your blog, an email list, Twitter, podcasts, if you could just pick one, what do you think would be most important for you personally? Twitter is my most valuable by far. Yeah, I see the public stuff, but like a lot of things happen in the direct messages where investors reach out, companies reach out, potential employees reach out. So that's like a bit of an engine for the business yeah. and like a serendipity vehicle of sorts. <laughs> but then you want to move it to own channels as much as you can. So like I have lead magnets. So like email courses, you can sign up for free just to get people's emails. Although I basically never send anyone emails. So I'm just like collecting them because I'm told it's valuable, but I kind of hate sending <laughs> newsletters. This is a course that you offer or something that you sign up for? ConvertKit is the platform and you just set up like lead magnets. So it's oh, like, gotcha. I have a five-day course on five mistakes on that you want to avoid on buying a small business. And that like gives people value. And then maybe it converts to you know sale or people will just like you more because you provided them more value. If you were a developer, what would you be building right now? What's going to grow? What's going to have value? So we have this Blink Sale, a horizontal invoicing app. And horizontal stuff is just tough. It's tough to market something that could be used by effectively anyone. So we decided to niche it down. And we niche it down to just landscapers. But I think there's an opportunity across all trades for like business management software for X. So, you know, pest control, truckers, anything. So I would say just pick kind of an underserved niche and like try to partner with someone and build them, be like their software arm, build them a software that suits their needs. That's also like who we're the most excited to buy from generally and the best companies where it's like one niche expert in some random industry and then like a full stack developer that could build everything that's needed. That's how I think about going about it. Any trade software is super interesting to me right now. Is that sort of where you're honing your interest in for your next deal? Yeah. So we're talking to more of those. Also just literally pivoting Blink Sale in that direction. And then randomly getting more like inbound on dog related software or like pet care software. So some of those are pretty good. There's just a lot of tailwinds with those things. So that's exciting. I didn't anticipate becoming like the software pet care kingpin, but here we are. What does the pet care software do? All different things. Like there's borders. So you could board dogs, dog grooming software. I've seen a few different varieties of those. For like accounting or the CRM? Yeah, a lot of vertical Just, market software has similar features. So it's like invoicing, messaging, scheduling, like variations on that. So you're not getting into AI at the moment? No, I think it's super interesting. And I want to see how we can improve all our processes. So like our customer service guys, I was just like, hey, you could just type in here, like, how do you do a beautiful reply to someone that says their dog ate their computer and they want a refund? It's like a ridiculous situation, but it will write like a really nice response to that. Right. So thinking of how to use it, not like build AI companies. Well, Colin, we really appreciate you coming on the show today. I think you've shared a lot of knowledge with us, a lot of interesting things for developers and independent business people to think about and learn more about. Is there anything you want to share with us today? Anything you want to leave with us? Yeah, if you so guys want to get in touch with you. Colin Keeley on Twitter, colinkeeley.com is where I have all my writing. A lot of free stuff out there, free courses and stuff. If you want to buy something, EDP is useful as a course. If you want to sell us something, even better. So vernhq.com is our software holding company or just reach out. I'm happy to talk. Very awesome. cool. All right. Thanks, thanks so much, Colin. Yeah, thanks, guys. Right.